If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The title of our message is God's Will, Sanctification. God's Will, Sanctification. So God's will for our lives is we're going to see. And so just a neat little section of Scripture as we're going through the Bible on Sunday mornings. We find ourselves here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me pray, Father. We thank you for this time in your word, and we pray, Father, that you would have your way in our hearts. And Lord, you desire to sanctify us. You desire, Lord, that we would be sanctified, set apart for your glory, set apart from this world. And so just help us, Lord, to apply the scriptures as we see them this morning. And I just pray that you would continue to grow us up in the things of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, as we are going through the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you see the first two verses in chapter 1. It says, finally, then. So there's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. First two words, finally, then. And he's not saying finally, then, as he's done. He still has another chapter after chapter 4. It's a five-chapter epistle. But he's saying, I'm going to begin to apply what I was talking about in chapter 3. If you remember last week, the title of the message was Brokenness, something to that effect. And I said, if we were on a highway or a road and we were in this thing of repentance, so this highway towards repentance, within repentance, there would be a confessing. And to confess means to say the same thing as God. And so we would confess a sin or a trespass or something that we've done or been doing We come to mind, something comes to mind, there's a conviction, and we confess that and we say, wow, Lord, I'm confessing this to you. I agree with you that this isn't what you want for me in my life. And so in that repentance, on this path, this road to repentance, we would take the off-ramp, and the only way repentance is going to happen is we take this off, this this, uh, ramp, this, what is it called when you get off the freeway? Off-ramp? Yeah. So we would be on this path, this highway, this road to repentance, and we would take the off-ramp, and that off-ramp would be brokenness. It would be brokenness. And for repentance to take place, brokenness needs to happen. Otherwise, I'm just sorry for my sin, or, or I'm just maybe remorse more, sorry that I got caught. If we were to go to a prison and we were to interview a few, I couldn't say all, but a few of the people were in there. We would put a microphone in front of their face, ask the question, are you sorry that you did this thing? Well, I'm sorry that I'm in here. Took away my freedom. Shoot, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it was pretty messed up. Sorry that I got caught. Dude, I don't know how to do it next time. I'll make sure that, you know, I don't tell that dude because he thinked on me or whatever. They're, they're sorry about their situation. They're sorry that they're in there, but are they sorry for what they did? Do they take responsibility for what they did? That, for us as Christians, comes when there's brokenness. Remember I shared last week the scripture in Luke's gospel that said in reference to Jesus as the Messiah and what was going on with the nation of Israel. And he said, fall on this rock, this rock of Christ, fall on Jesus and be broken. Or this rock is going to fall on you and crush you to powder. And it had gotten to the point in first century AD where the Jews had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. 
And you'll remember in John's Gospel, chapter 1, it says that he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. And so as people, as Christians for sure, we have an option. And the option is, Jesus is going to fall on us and crush us to powder if we don't walk in his way, or we need to fall on him and be broken. And that should be a cycle for our lives. We should be going through periods and times of brokenness. And God breaks us down to build us up. He doesn't break us down to leave us there. He doesn't break us down to ridicule us or laugh in our face. He allows us to come to moments in life to be broken so that from there he can begin to build us up. Because right there is the starting point with God. When we come to the end of ourselves, when we realize, when we tap out, uncle, uncle, I can't do it. You got me in a, in a hold where you're about to break my arm or whatever. And we tap out and say, Lord, I'm broken. I give up. I surrender. I'm desperate for you. I need you. I acknowledge that I can't do it without you. And so that was last week's study. He goes on now here in chapter 4. He says, finally then, because of all of that, brethren, and he's speaking to us as Christians, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So in now application of this sanctification and being broken and taking this off-ramp to brokenness in true, genuine repentance, he says, I want you to abound more and more. Not that you're doing bad. It's not that you're living these horrendous lives. You're, you're you're better than the culture that you're in. You're doing well. You're growing. You're, you're taking it in. You're sitting under the word. But I want you to abound. And not just abound, but abound more and more. I want you to continue to go forward. Just as you received how, uh, from us how you ought to walk and to please God. When the Bible talks about our walk, it's talking about our lifestyle. It's talking about how we conduct ourselves in the world. It's talking about our manner of living. And so as a Christian, our walk, our lifestyle, our manner of living is something that God wants us to pay attention to. So we don't sign up on the dotted line for salvation. Yep, Savior in need of a uh, sinner in need of a Savior. Yeah, I'll sign up for that. Woohoo, going to heaven. And then we're done with it. He's saying, no, no, you have a life. You have a lifestyle. You have a worldview. You have a way that you see things, and this is referred to as your walk. If you want to cheat with me, let's jump back a book to, or I don't know how many books, to Ephesians. Hold your place. I'm going to have you turn to two sections of scriptures in this Bible study. This is the first one. So hold your place in 1 Thessalonians, but turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at several verses in the book of Ephesians, and then a few verses in in chapter 4 and a few verses in chapter 5 as it relates to this thing called walk. So in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1 there, he says, hold on, let me get my notes, make sure I got it. Yep, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And so the first thing that he relates to your walk 
as a Christian, walk worthy. Do, do you recognize what God has done as a Christian? Do, do you recognize that you were going to hell? You were lost. You were blind. God pulled you. He bought you with his precious blood. He pulled you out of the slave market of sin. And he said, walk worthy of that. Make that mean something. Make that count. Make that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for you, on your behalf. Make that count for something. Walk worthy of that calling. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 4 at verse 17 in reference to our walk. He says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. You're not a Gentile anymore in the sense of you're not an unbeliever. Are are you a Christian? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you accepted and received the sacrifice that Jesus has made? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? When it's all said and done and the books are open, Are we going to find your name in the book of life? If that's the case, don't do what you used to do when you were a non-believer. Don't behave in that way. Don't conduct yourself in that manner. You're not that person anymore. You've been born again, born to a new hope. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 5 now, verse 2, in relation to our walk. He says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Walk in love. In contrast to what? The world. Is the world walking in love? Maybe some, maybe some not, but we as Christians, we should be walking in love. How are we conducting ourselves with people? Are we gracious? Are we patient? Are we long-suffering? Are we gentle? Are we meek? Are we all of these things that love is? Are we rude, which is not love? Are we prideful, which is not love? No, no. He's saying walk in love. Conduct yourselves in a manner where your lifestyle, your manner of living is one of love. It's identified as love. There should be a difference. There should be a contrast. When people watch our lives and they're watching how we behave, how we interact with other people, think about the workforce or or the workplace or think about school where there's annoying, obnoxious people and everyone is against that annoying and obnoxious person and that you come along and you treat that person a little different. You respond to that person a little more gracious, a little more patient, a little more long-suffering doesn't mean that you can't tell them things or, hey, I don't know if you know this, but did you know that you're kind of obnoxious sometimes in love? Huh? Throw it out there. One-on-one, right? But nonetheless, there's a difference. Walking in love. It should look different. We have God who has loved us. And when, when did he love us? When we were at our best, right? No, the Bible says when we were at our worst. When you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And then the last verse in Ephesians 5 that I wanted to look at was verse 15. He says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So walk circumspectly, walk deliberately, walk on purpose, 
Don't walk as you're meandering. You could tell when people are walking down the street and they got nowhere to go. They're kind of just, you know, just meandering. Yeah, I don't even, got, I don't even know what I should be doing right now. Yeah, no, walk purposeful, circumspectly, walk deliberately. Know that the end of the whole thing is I'm going to heaven. I got an end in mind. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when I stand before my Lord, when it's all said and done. And so because of that, I'm walking circumspectly. There's a deliberateness in my life and my lifestyle. It's not just, well, I'll just see what happens in life and not sure what's going on. No, no, no. We have a function, a purpose, a direction that we're walking in. And so as back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As he continues, he says, um, not only that we walk, notice in that last part, he says, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So in your lifestyle, in your walk, in your manner of living, in your conduct, in your behavior, are you living to please God? Revelation chapter 4 says, you were created for God's good pleasure. As you study the attributes of God, you can go down a list of different attributes that God possesses. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. He is um, immutable. He doesn't change. He is self-sufficient. As you go through these attributes of God, what you begin to discover is God doesn't need anything. God needs nothing. God didn't create you because he needed you. You were created for his good pleasure. He is self-sufficient. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in eternity past, perfectly fulfilled and satisfied, full and complete in his character, in his nature. And so if I was created to please God for his good pleasure, then that's how I should be living. And when I'm living outside of that, then I'm not living for what I was created for. It sounds simple. You take my tablet. I'm not real technologically savvy. Somebody just fixed it for me. It would go after every two minutes. And so I was like, oh, why is it going off? I got to put my code back in. And he's like, uh, it's in the settings and, you know, does one of those technological things and he fixes it. So now it's like, yeah, every 15 minutes. Okay, cool. So I just got to touch it every 15 before it goes off. So now I have a tablet and it has the ability to be able to do certain things. Well, the person that designed or created, if you will, the tablet has certain functions and features built into it, and I can maximize those things by reading the instructions and being able to figure out, whoa, I can put apps on this thing. This is crazy, right? And I connect to the internet and do all kinds of cool stuff, right? Or, or I could say, you know what? They tell me El Nino's coming. <laughs> El Nino's coming, and my roof needs some help. I need to fix my roof. And I'm going to need to nail in some nails. So I'm going to take this tablet. I'm going to use it for a hammer. To hammer in nails to be able to fix my roof. And so there I am on my roof hammering nails to get the tiles right so that my my roof doesn't leak because El Nino's coming, right? And I guess I could do that. But what's going to happen to my tablet? 
I'm probably going to crack the screen. I'm probably going to get glass or whatever it is made of. I'm going to jack it up. I'm probably going to break it at some point, right? Trying to hammer in nails on my roof because El Nino's coming. But that's not what it was designed for. My tablet wasn't created to be used as a hammer. And so when we find ourselves outside of God's will, living for anything but his glory, his pleasure, why he created me, we find ourselves broken, cracked, messed up. People look at us and they're like, whoa, dude, what's wrong with you? I'm just living outside of God's will for my life. That's what's wrong with me. I'm not bringing God pleasure. That's what's wrong with me. We won't say that. We won't acknowledge that. But that's the very thing that's taking place. We're living our lives outside of why we were created. To please God. Clearly saying right here that not only as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. He goes on, for you know, verse 2, what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. I don't know what you think of when you think of commandments, but I think of two things. I think, one, I fall short of the commandments of God. That's the first thing that I think of. And that's why the commandments were given, actually, right? The law was given as a standard of perfection to reveal to us that we fall short of that standard of perfection. What does that do in turn? It's supposed to humble us. It's supposed to drive us to Christ. It's supposed to say, Lord, I can't. I can't in my own strength. I can't in my own power. I fall short of this perfect standard, this standard of perfection. Lord, I need you. Lord, help me. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is also that the commandments of God do things in my life as I begin to take them in, and God, through me, helps me to obey them. So God does this work from the inside out as he sets up this standard. So the second section of Scripture that I'll have you turn to, turn with me to Hold your place in 1 Thessalonians. We're coming back. But turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. I want to look at this section of Scripture because if you think of the law, I want you to think of this section of Scripture because we have this idea that God's commandments are a burden. And the Bible says the very opposite. I was reading 1 John this morning and I read chapters 3, 4, and 5. And in 1st, I couldn't find it. I was looking for it. I knew it was in there. And in 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, the Bible says that his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments were not made to weigh us down, to burden us as he's working again his will in our lives. So notice with me now in Psalm chapter 19, starting at verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. How does the law of the Lord convert the soul? It shows us that we fall short of the glory of God. It shows us that that standard of perfection is something that we can't attain to or keep. And so the law of the Lord, in that sense, being a perfect model, it converts us. We see that we fall short. We see that we can't do it. Only then can we recognize and acknowledge our need for a Savior. So the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And so when we look at the law and the commandments of God, as he's telling us here in verse 2, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. When we think of commandments, we would think, we should think, number one, it drives me to Christ, but also number two, look at all these benefits that God's commandments, his law, his statutes can bring to my life. I should desire them more than the sweetest tasting thing on earth, honey and the honeycomb. I shouldn't run away from it. I shouldn't shy away from it. No, I don't want to sit under the word because God's just going to bring this baggage into my life. No, 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 no. The very opposite. God's going to free you up. God's going to bless you. God's going to give you something that you need as you sit under the word and you take it in and you realize and recognize, whoa, the Lord's growing me up. The Lord's sanctifying me, setting me apart from the world. He's setting me apart to himself. Well, I'm functioning in the manner that I was created to function. What a concept. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So the title of the message, God's Will, Sanctification, verse 3, for this is the will of God Your sanctification. What is sanctification? Being set apart. Being set apart for God. Being set apart from the world and its system that is against God. The world is one of the enemies of God. The world and its system, its diabolical system, run by the God of this world, the God of this age, Satan. And so we are set apart from that whole system in sanctification. God growing us up as his children in the things of God. This word sexual immorality is the ancient Greek word translated pornea in the Greek is a broad word referring to any sexual relationship outside of the marriage covenant. And so there's this major misunderstanding of sex and what sex is and what sex is supposed to be about. And um, I don't know where it comes from, but some people think that Satan created sex and and it It's all bad, and maybe if you're making little babies, then maybe it'll be okay, but other than that, stop it, schnock it off, cut it out. God created sex. God gave us the gift of sex, the blessing of sex, all of these wonderful things that we can experience. God had that in mind for us, but he's saying that anything outside of what is proper in a union of two people coming together in a sexual relationship is going to be destructive. It's going to be harmful. It's going to mess us up. 
And so we look at the culture that Paul is writing to. And within this culture, the ancient writer Demosthenes expressed the generally amoral view of sex in the ancient Roman Empire. And this is his quote. He says, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. We keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. And so in this culture that Paul is writing to, the average man had three women for sexual pleasure. And it was accepted within the culture. It was the norm. It was what everyone kind of looked at as, ah, well, of course, you know, man's got needs. This is the culture that Paul is writing to. And our culture is different. This culture was pretty bad because I don't think we accept that, right? Each guy has three women for his, you know, sexual needs, his sexual pleasure. But our culture is, I wouldn't say it's, it's better or worse, just definitely bad, but in a different way. Let me read you what I found as I was studying. The average age of exposure to pornography is down to eight years old. So the first time kids are being exposed to pornography in our culture, in this time that we live in, eight years old. Before the days of the internet, children were typically between the ages of 11 to 13 when they began viewing soft corn pornography found in magazines such as Playboy. And so we've gone from, because of the internet, 11 to 13 first being exposed to eight years old. Well, what's happening at eight years old? Do you think a person at eight years old, a child at eight years old, has the maturity to, and the faculties of understand what's going on when they're exposed to something like that? Unfortunately, no, they don't. They're, they're barely unraveling. The pituitary gland hasn't even kicked in yet. Their sexuality hasn't even begun to develop. And so... They're exposed to too much too soon, and it throws them off. But that's the culture that we live in. And so the culture that Paul was living in, pretty bad as it related to sexual sin and sexual immorality. Our culture, pretty bad as it relates to sexual sin and sexual immorality. And God is not hating on us. God is not thumping us or trying to rob us of something. He's not giving us this information to deprive us or take something away from us he's saying children you got to be different than the culture you live in you can't get your marching orders from the culture that you live in because the culture that you live in is going the way of the world and the way of the world is the way of the enemy because he once again is the god of this age the god of this world and so for god's children he's saying i have something better for you something different for you within that culture He goes on now, as he says in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Let's break some of these down. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. When he says your vessel, he's referring to your body. This is how you should possess your own personal body. Be careful with it. And you should do it in sanctification, being set apart, and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So there should be a contrast between the children of God and the children of the world or the children that don't know God, and that should not be in the passion of lust. Our body has desires. It has cravings. God is saying be careful with those. 
Verse 6, he says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified for God did not call us in cleanness but in holiness. So there are four reasons for the command. He starts out because the Lord is the avenger of all such. This is the first of four reasons for sexual purity. We can trust that God will punish sexual immorality and that no one gets away with the sin, even if it is undiscovered. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. And again, it's not like God is sitting on his throne and waiting for somebody to get out of line so that he can throw lightning bolts at them. The Bible says in the book of Numbers, know this, your sin will find you out. Your sin is going to track you down. Your sin is going to catch up with you. In Galatians chapter 5, the Bible says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. But if he sows to the Spirit, he will reap life everlasting. And so in that, our sin catches up to us. Think of David. And toward the end of David's life, his trusted commander, commander of his army, Ahithophel, would choose sides with his son that wants to rebel against him, Absalom. So David's son, Absalom, wants to rebel against his father. And he divides the kingdom. And Ahithophel chooses Absalom's side and goes against David. And he says to um, Absalom, I know how to get to your dad. I know what you can do. Take your dad's concubines and have sex with them on the palace wall so that the whole community can see, and they will know that you have usurped your dad's authority. You've taken over his power. Absalom does that. He heeds this advice from Ahithophel. And as you just watch it unfold, you're like, whoa, what's going on? Ahithophel was David's trusted commander. He served with him decade after decade faithfully. What's going on? And long story short on that, uh, Ahithophel ends up dying in war. Absalom is on a donkey riding through wherever they're going in this battle. And his hair, I think he's the Fabio of his time, his hair gets stuck in a tree branch and he's ascended in between earth and heaven and somebody comes along and ends up killing him. Okay, So that's kind of what happens there. But you ask yourself, whoa, how could David have a trusted general Somebody who has got his back for year after year, after decade after decade, and then turn on him. You study the scriptures, and what do you come to find out? Is the grandfather of a young lady named Bathsheba. So it would be years, decades later, that this man that David would commit adultery with and sexual sin end up having her husband killed and bring, him into the, bring her into the palace and live like life is normal, right? Give birth to their son Solomon and just everything would look normal. It would be decades later that this sin would catch up to David and his son would turn on him through the counsel of one who was affected by sexual sin because his granddaughter was taken advantage of. And that doesn't make it right on Ahithophel's part. That's, that's sin that he'll have to deal with with God. But recognize that these things have a way of just coming back and destroying God's children. 
and wreaking havoc in the lives of God's children. And we think, nah, swept it under the rug. It's gone. Nobody even knows. And he's saying right here, be careful because the Lord is the avenger of all such. Number two, for God did not call us to uncleanness but holiness. This is the second reason why Christians should be sexually pure because of our call. That call is not to uncleanness but to holiness. Therefore, sexual immorality is simply inconsistent with who we are in Jesus Christ. We've been called to holiness, not to immoral things. Paul developed this same line of thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20, concluding with the idea that we should glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Because God bought you with his precious blood, he owns you. Therefore, in conclusion, glorify God in your body. That's how we should conduct ourselves. The third thing, therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God. So the third reason for sexual purity is because to reject God's call to sexual purity is not rejecting man, but God himself. Despite the petty ways many rationalize sexual immorality, we, re- we still reject God when we sin in this way. And then finally, the fourth thing, he who has also given us his Holy Spirit. This is the fourth of four reasons for sexual purity giving in this passage, we have been given the Holy Spirit who empowers the willing, trusting Christian to overcome sexual sin. By His Spirit, God has given us the resources for victory. We are responsible to use those resources. Who has given us His Holy Spirit. Now, we have the application, if you will, of this section of sanctification and abstaining from sexual immorality in the closing verses. We're going to close with this, verses 9 through 12, he goes on to say, but concerning brotherly love. So not love, making love outside of God's will. We call it making love. What is that word? Is that word God's form of love? No, that word is eros, E-R-O-S in the Greek, from which we get our English word erotic. So in contrast to erotic love, that passionate love that is outside of God's will, if it is immoral, I'm going to turn you to brotherly love, phileo, another form of love. You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you lack nothing. And so his application of, in contrast to not living a life that is sanctified, set apart to God, in sexual purity, the contrast is, don't be a busybody, learn to keep your mouth shut and work with your hands. What? It's almost like, well, how did he apply it that way? Well, if these are the things you're doing, you don't got time for that other stuff. So he says the first thing there in verse 11, that you aspire to lead a quiet life. Don't be a busybody. Don't meddle in people's affairs. Don't be up in people's Kool-Aid trying to check out the flavor, if you will. Just lead a quiet life. 
Look to the Lord. Try to get that right first and foremost. After a quiet life, he says, to mind your own business. And again, the book of Peter talks about being a busybody, meddling in the affairs of other people's lives. Are you that bored? Are you, are you not trying to seek the Lord for your own sanctification that you need to get, be in somebody else's business? I remember, I don't know if you guys remember uh, French, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I remember this episode where Will is trying to help Ashley, the little sister. Uh, she has these bullies at school that are trying to beat her up. And he's like, all right, all right, I, I think I got it. Okay, what you need to do is you need to act a little bit crazy. And so you need to get a little twitch going. And, and, and if they come, just tell them, mind your own business. That's what you need to do. You need to mind your own business. And that's what I thought of when I was reading this. I was like, yeah, that's from that Will Smith episode. We need to mind our own business. Tides. Kind, of kind of what I thought about. So first you start with a quiet life. Then you need to mind your own business. It says it right there. And then we need to work with our own hands. If we're working with our own hands, if we're contributing to our lifestyle. Later in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to say to a group of individuals thought, that thought that because Jesus was going to come back at any moment, they could quit their jobs. And by quitting their jobs, they can force the body of Christ to support them. And Paul would admonish them and he would say, if there's a group of people that will not work, then they're not going to eat. So if you're not going to work, then don't eat. We should be contributing to society in a positive way by making sure that we're taking responsibilities for the things we're doing. Notice, if we were busy with leading a quiet life, minding our own business, and working with our own hands, we wouldn't have time for this other stuff that the enemy wants to drag us into. He closes it off that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. On that verse 11, I found this quote in one of the commentaries. He writes, There is nothing more disgraceful than an idle, good-for-nothing who is of no use either to himself or to others and seems to have been born merely to eat and drink. We should not be those who are in the category of good-for-nothing and fleecing off of everyone, expecting everyone to give us handouts. And so... That's his application, his solution, if you will. And notice how he ends it, that you may lack nothing, that we wouldn't be lacking in life. When you think of God's commandments, when you think of these things that God is telling us, don't look at them as from somebody who is trying to rob us of something. Know the heart of God. The heart of God is to bring to our lives, to give us something that is meaningful, something that is, that is worth something, something that is of value. And so these commandments shouldn't bum us out. These things shouldn't, we shouldn't have the attitude that they're ripping us off, but that they're going to contribute to our lives. They're going to help us to function as God intended us to function. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Your desire that we would be set apart, Lord. It's your will for our lives. And I pray, Lord, that our desire would be to seek after you, to go after you, Lord, to continue to look to you. Lord, you've given us your word that we would have direction. You've given us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, that you would guide us and empower us to do what you are calling us to do. 
And so, Lord, as we find ourselves on this road to repentance and we take this off-ramp, Lord, and we recognize in a state of brokenness that you would take over, Lord, from that place and that you would build stone upon stone in our lives as we participate and cooperate with the work of your Spirit, allowing you access. You're not forcing us. We get to cooperate with you. We get to march with you as you lead us and guide us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of your word as we look to you for strength, guidance, direction, and everything that we need, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.